You're listening to the fifth edition of Free City Radio. Um, this uh, podcast uh, has been launched in the context of the COVID-19 crisis globally. I'm here in Montreal. Free City Radio is also broadcast on CKUT on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Some of the material here isn't broadcast on the radio show, but I, I wanted to share a bunch of audio that I've been recording the last uh, week um, here on the Free City Radio podcast. Uh, I'm Stefan Christoph. Thanks for being with us. Um, so on the show today, I wanted to share some discussions I've been having with people in different parts of the world as uh, these events have been unfolding. Also, I was in touch with a few friends of mine on WhatsApp, and I actually asked them to record some sounds and reflections uh, where they were at. So we'll hear some sounds from different parts of the world of people uh, who've just recorded with their phones um, the ambiance, the situation where they are. And as I mentioned, some conversations with friends. So the first uh, exchange today that I wanted to share is... Um, a discussion I had with a friend of mine and also a really uh, amazing community organizer here in Montreal who works with the Immigrant Workers Center, uh, Mustafa Hanawi. Um, this discussion, I think, really highlights some important points of reflection for grassroots activists at this time. Um, it revolves around um, the sounds we're hearing from some politicians already in the UK and Canada and the United States to try to uh, suggest that the way of addressing, paying for, dealing with the financial fallout from COVID-19 will be austerity. Uh, and yeah, Mustafa breaks down why it's important to start articulating and critiquing against that now um, and also speaks about um, the ways that things have changed so rapidly, but also how it illustrates uh, the ways that um, a lot of the policies that social movements have been fighting for, a living wage, housing, and healthcare for all, are things that are in fact possible, but there are political decisions that governments have made to not take action on these, but this crisis has, has in fact provoked them to do so. I won't go into the entire conversation, but um, here's my exchange with Mustafa. I do want to note that this was actually just recorded on a phone. I put my recorder beside the phone, so the quality is not perfect, but you'll still be able to hear really clearly what Mustafa is sharing. I think we, we live in a moment, or like we have a moment that we've never maybe uh, seen before. Like I think it's like, the, this is a moment that could be like... Um, like it's when people say there's no going back to it to a normal and maybe that's i think that's true but i think what we can do i mean it can go uh you know one way or another right and i think this is this is what is so important about this moment right it's like either people i mean for the first time where people see themselves uh, all connected, unfortunately, through a virus, uh, as a globe, a sense of social solidarity, like on a most basic level, right? Like the fact that people are willing to uh, to be distant from each other, the fact that people are putting up 
uh, 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 rainbows, the fact that people are, uh, uh, you know, putting up banners and finding ways to connect. Like, I think for the first time, like, there's a sense of connection that goes beyond the market. Like, that no, like, and no one's job, no one's, uh, everyone has value simply because they're a human being and they have the right to stay alive. Uh, I think that's different than, than any, you know, anything that I've ever lived through or maybe our generation has lived through. And that, and that even the way that governments are responding that, you know, we'll just print money. We'll just, uh, will make sure people, you know, to varying degrees, it's not perfect. No, there's been no real socialism, right? But the fact that, like, uh, we're going to augment people's wages or we're going to just helicopter money to people, uh, we'll give health care to everybody at this time. Um, the fact that you see this or that we'll shut down the entire economy, right? Like, it's clear that, like, uh, that a different kind of world is possible. Uh, and I think part of it is, in a weird way, is like something we have to defend after, right? That like all of these policies were possible, unfortunately because of a virus, but they were possible. Free transit, less work time, uh, more time with people's families, health care for all. Uh, housing is a right. All of these things became possible, and they exist in some in some weird way or the other. Um, so I think part of it is like after this subsides, is like as a left and as activists, it's like is having to defend anything that was handed out by the government during this crisis. And what they're going to say, unfortunately, is going to be the next evil. Right? Well, we have to pay for it all now. You know, so, like, and then you're going to, you know, in terms of uh, privatizing more of, of, of the state or privatizing more of healthcare, right? It's, well, and it's clear, right, that the private sector wasn't dynamic, right? Like in the U.S. or in other places, right? That it requires uh, real public institutions to actually to carry this through, right? So I think part of it is to, like, actually to use this afterwards to, to like, society to say, like, look, um, we need these things, right? And it's a matter of life and death, and we all just went through that, right? So uh, we need it beyond this current crisis. And then I think the other thing that, like, in terms of, like, a global picture, um uh it's it's clear right like campaigns to drop the debt in the global south uh ending the sanctions uh i mean the other thing that is uh wickedly going unnoticed uh is that unfortunately the u.s is using this as like it not in a conspiratorial kind of way but like uh I guess maybe with less attention that like it, cause it gets whatever, six, six pages, like we're going to go after Venezuela. We're going to go after Iran even further. Uh, 
we're going to send Patriot missiles to Iraq. Like, uh, uh, you know, we're going to bomb Gaza. Like, this is... Uh, and I think people would care, right? Like, and I think people are using the virus rightly to say, look, you have to lift the sanctions on Iran. You have to lift the siege on Gaza. You have to... Uh, there has to be a ceasefire in Yemen, right? So I think... Uh, I think after this crisis, I mean, after, like, the the virus subsides temporarily, is like... Uh, is, like, solidarity with the Global South is going to be really important. And just one last point, uh, Mustafa... In terms of, like, just directly countering the argument that, okay, well, you know, all these steps have been taken um, to try to mitigate the effects of this pandemic. So in terms of supporting workers, in terms of um, many policies that have been adopted to support even the healthcare system in the United States um, in this sort of emergency moment. Um I'm wondering if you can directly counter this idea that, oh, well, this needs to be paid for. How do you respond to that? Like, I mean, there's different points, right? Like, obviously, one model of quote-unquote payment for this will be to decimate public institutions and public spending. Uh, but what are other approaches and, and sort of a critique of this framework? I mean, the anti-capitalist framework would be that simply, uh, you know, like the anti-capitalist framework would be that simply that we, uh, I mean, capitalism is just a system of, of the ways in which things are organized, right? And that uh, a lot of the wealth and a lot of the surplus is like privately recuperated, right? And that uh, as opposed to being publicly uh, distributed and organized um, and how that value is distributed, right? And and I think that that is like, that is the, the key here, right? Is that uh, that there's like, if there's the political will, then there's clearly like the way, right? And then when, when, when country A says, well, you know, if now we're in so much debt because of this. Well, who's the debt to? Right? Yeah, expand, ex expand on that point, please. So well, I the mean, the debt is to yourself, right? If the government's borrowing or the government is printing money, it's in debt to itself. I mean, there's economic consequences within, the, like, uh, within capitalism to say, well, then what's the value of your money? And then that's how inflation happens or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. But if you throw out those laws, those laws aren't natural laws. They're simply man-made laws. So you can equally say that there is just no uh, recession. We're just stopping to produce things um, or to do things uh, because we think it's the right thing to do at this moment. And then we'll go on to do things afterwards, right? So there's, and that it's clear that it's possible to to cancel the debt or that like when the government hands out a near universal basic income, it's not universal basic income, but a near universal basic income, 
that people are essentially given the value and the right to like to be able to eat or to do the things to to pay their rent uh, simply because they're a human being, not because they have an X or or Y job, right? And yeah. I think that's the other thing that's been clear throughout this crisis, right? The idea of what's essential is is fascinating to watch, right? And that is the other thing, right? Like that we've given so much value to bullshit jobs that now in this crisis we understand what the basics of life are really are and that like who actually produces value or what's what is deemed as value uh in the society are the ones who don't actually uh who get it so i think this is uh yeah, and so you're talking about essential workers and people that are working to keep people healthy in the healthcare sector, people who are working and keeping the cities running, people who are producing food, um, these people who are producing and sustaining communications infrastructure. Exactly. These are the people who are like, uh, like they, they produce like, yeah, they produce things that actually are valuable to us. Right, and we're beginning to realize that now, uh, as opposed to the, all the other jobs and, and the way that uh, what we gave value to before this crisis, like the financial sector, for example. Yeah, financial sector, marketing, services, retail. You know what I mean? Like, and and that's and that's considered what like what produces like uh, that. That's what produces value, and that's what makes a society advance under like the same laws or logic of the market, right? And you're like, well, all of that just goes up in smoke in this moment. Mm-hmm. But I think to go to to go back to like the way that like uh, in terms of like who pays for this or like who who doesn't, it's a political question. It's not like a question of like. Uh, of the market, right? Because at the end of the day, even if governments are borrowing from uh, investment banks or, uh, you know, institutional funders like um, pension funds and whatnot, uh, it's the government that still dictates the terms. And I mean, that's a thing that we have to be loud about afterwards, right? That like, uh, we have the power to make those decisions upon them, not the other way around. And I think that is going to be like, I think that's going to be the key, one of the key battlegrounds afterwards. Yeah, that the response to this post-crisis isn't dictated by people uh, within the financial sector or corporate sector. Yeah, and that we we shouldn't, it's not simply about uh, bailing out banks, but it's about paying them exorbitant amount of money for the money that a government borrows at a time of a life or death crisis for the entire society or planet, you know? Yeah, break that down a little bit more about paying them exorbitant rates about the money that the government borrows. Well, I mean, the borrow. I mean, the the government, if it's gonna, if if it has to borrow, uh, I mean, it can do it two ways, right? It it, it can borrow by printing its own money, 
but then that lowers the price of the money or it borrows uh, from banks and other institutional funders, right? So uh, at that time, we're always paying interest on those loans like governments in the global south and all of that is usurped privately even though we control as a government or as a state what those interest rates are what those banks can and can't do and that simply at the end of the day uh that you know at the end of the day like we pay them uh essentially to be able to borrow what belongs to society anyways uh and is used by society uh so the fact that like we uh and at the end of the day they they use that money most of the time uh even when it, when it works the other way around when private companies or or banks have to be bailed out or uh take money from the state they piss it away and then uh, or that they, you know, that they, that they mismanage it, that they use it for uh, share buybacks, or they use it for uh, particular investment strategies, uh, knowing down the road. I mean, Bombardier is the clearest example in Quebec. You know, the fact that it was able to take billions of dollars, and then at the end of the day, it sold off most of the company uh, to other multinationals, you know, or the, when the financial sector was bailed out after the crisis, uh, you know, these things are used for share buybacks or CEO uh, uh, CEOs pay. And it's interesting to see in the U.S. that in this bailout, that uh, there are actual limitations to what the government can actually, or what uh, corporations or firms can actually use the money for. Uh, limiting CEO pay, limiting share buybacks, all of these things. So the fact is, is that um, it's clear that it's possible to dictate uh, to dictate the terms on on finance, right? And the fact is, is that we shouldn't be paying back, or we shouldn't be giving them our. We shouldn't be like austerity isn't necessary at all. Zero after this. And in fact, like, it shows the argument or the need that only through socialized policies can we actually save ourselves as a species, which is crazy to think about, right? Like, the, the fact that, like, uh, because the logic of, of, of the market or the logic of, of all of this is that uh, it's dynamic, right? That it's not just about economic democracy through the market, or it's not just about, but that it's also dynamic. It'll produce uh, the most rationalized responses, the most efficient, the most dynamic, uh, etc. And none of that took place throughout this crisis. The only thing that's like, uh, that's done the opposite, that's mitigated this crisis uh, to not being even worse uh, of a catastrophe is that uh, through actually, you know, 
non-market policies, right? Through the intervention of like the public in terms of healthcare, in terms of, of, of welfare policies, in terms of social policies, in terms of dictating on the economy. So it's totally possible. This crisis showed the blueprint of, of what another world could be. I mean, not in a democratic way, not in an ideal or utopian way, but it's a glimpse on what's actually possible. That was a conversation with Mustafa Hanawi, who's a community organizer and a writer here in Montreal uh, who works with the Immigrant Workers Centre. Thank you, Mustafa. So I've been on social media a lot in the last few weeks, uh, like many, uh, just to be honest with you, but it also has allowed me to keep in touch with friends in different parts of, um, of the world in terms of what's happening. And... Um, one friend of mine, I just want to note in Brooklyn, um, wrote to me about the sounds of the ambulances, and that really struck me, just sort of having to stay in your house and hearing the ambulances all the time. And of course, New York is such an epicenter to COVID-19 and this pandemic in, in New York, that message really stayed with me. Um, Thanks, Lisa St. James, for sharing that reflection. I wanted to share a piece of music that is not directly related to um, what's been happening, but it's an artist that I got to know this past year um, during their visits to Montreal. Uh, it, it's an artist based in Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, the artist is Cesa, and this is um, a modern um, remix of Tropicalia and jazz experimentation uh, and also an awesome person. So I wanted to play a track uh, from Cesar. Meu bem é tanto que nem tem Explicação Meu bem é tanto que nem tem Solução Às vezes a vida Te arma uma briga E te joga no chão Às vezes, querida, pra achar uma saída, a gente cava com a mão. Meu bem é tanto que nem tem explicação. Solução 
coisa tão crua Que eu fico sem entender Como que a vida faz tanta ferida Mas ainda faz você That was César, uh, out of Sao Paulo, Brazil, with the piece Tanto. That's from a really great album. Um, I'd really encourage people to check it out. It's called Grandeza. Uh, thanks, César. Next, I wanted to share some audio that my friend in Paris uh, sent me, Dror Varshavsky, uh, who is a social justice activist, an academic, um, actually, who works in the field of microbiology, uh, but also somebody who's been deeply involved in international solidarity movements and social justice movements, particularly around Palestinian human rights. Uh, but we're in touch and I wanted to hear uh, how Dror was. And he sent me this short reflection about what it's been like to join the uh, collective um, sessions in the evening on balconies where people cheer on the healthcare public sector workers. So here's Dror sharing his reflections and we'll also hear a bit of audio from Paris from one of these evenings where people go onto their balconies and celebrate uh, the frontline workers. Here at eight o'clock at night, every night, people get out uh, the window or balcony, they have a balcony and clap hands. They, they clap hands in honor of uh, doctors, nurses, and uh, all together workers that work and uh, take many risks uh, either to save lives or just to save capitalism, you know, but they have to because they have to make a living. And uh, so we open our windows and we go out and clap hands. Uh, it's also one of the few moments where we get out air, sun, and our neighbors on the balconies. And uh, actually, that's how I got to know some of my neighbors. Also, uh, thinking that this was not enough or not political enough, I've decided to put out a banner outside my balcony to, to uh, ask for uh, money for public services and public health services. And I think it was the first one in my block of buildings to do it. But interestingly enough, it triggered other people to make banners too. So now uh, around me, I have a couple of balconies with banners. And uh, we kind of look at each other and smile. And I feel like, yeah, it's a way to replace demos and to feel that we're Maybe not doing much, but we're still here and we're still uh, ready to do things when when it will be more possible. So, um, I don't know. Some people seem to think that this uh, 8 o'clock hand clap is uh, not that meaningful, but for me it is. And I, I look forward to it uh, every night. Uh, it's last for three, four, five minutes, and then we have dinner. But, uh, you know, um, yeah, can't wait to talk to my neighbors uh, 
face to face when we when we finally can in a couple of weeks or months. But in the meantime, I see them across the the street. Thank you, Dror Varshavsky in Paris for sharing that audio and your reflections about about uh, what it's been like in Paris for you. I wanted to play a piece now by Mohamed Reza Shahjarani, uh, who is um, a poet and singer, uh, artist, uh, one of the great uh, masters of Iranian contemporary music. My uh, brother-in-law, Samin, um, sent this over, and I just wanted to play a piece. Uh, I just heard it today.
That's uh, music by Mohammad Reza Shajarani. Thanks to my brother-in-law, Samin Abhar, uh, for sending that over. And I wanted to now uh, share a discussion uh, that I had with a friend of mine uh, who is in Mexico City with her family, Amanda Ruiz, uh, who is an awesome artist, interdisciplinary artist, and also um, someone who does work with the Immigrant Workers Center, with the Artist Block, uh, which is a project that brings together artists with uh, migrant workers, um, non-status workers in Montreal to express the struggles of workers in this city through the arts. Uh, Amanda's in Mexico with her family right now, and shared some reflections on some points that activists have been bringing up in Mexico in the context of this pandemic and some of the issues. Um, so again, this was a conversation we had by phone and I recorded it. Um, so the uh, quality isn't perfect, but you'll definitely hear um, what Amanda uh, 
uh, has shared. And thank you to Amanda for uh, sharing these reflections. The government might be hiding like the real numbers because of the system that they implemented, that they are just tracking information from like a center of information that receives the information from the other hospitals and all that. But we don't know because, uh, for example, at the border with the U.S., there are like, I don't know, 1,000 uh, um, uh, people infected already with the virus. And the city that is next to them in Mexico, they have like 20 cases. Which city? It's like, how, how is that happening? Like Tijuana okay. and, um, and um, San Diego and all those cities that really have like a like a traffic every day of people going in and out because that border is still open and it just we don't get how is that happening like uh, just in the US are people getting sick but in Mexico no it's hard to believe but then also there's like actually in the south of Mexico there's people who are detained in Basically, yeah, like exactly. immigration jails, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been trying to uh, to circulate that that kind of information because in one of the uh, reports of uh, like the daily report, they said um, that the because of the border, there's the infection is not going through, and people is like, okay, no, that that's that just doesn't make sense. Because people is traveling all the time. There are trucks coming in, coming out, and there are families that are that are in both sides, or people that work, whatever. Uh, and after the other, like a more like a medical um, technician said that no, the borders doesn't um, contain diseases. So yeah, there's a huge contradiction. Like within the same government. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I guess also, like, if you think about, like, um, the idea that they're not reporting all the cases. Well, in fact, I mean, there hasn't been mass testing. So even if they wanted to report the cases, it wouldn't be possible. Yeah, Both exactly. for people detained, but also in general. Yeah, 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 exactly. That part I I still don't don't understand exactly, like because these guys say that it's uh, haven't been proved that the mass uh, testing is like a good um, tool for solving the thing. So he said, no, that's not necessary. And um, who but said they that? do usually that the guy who is in charge of the epidemic okay. thing is a doctor uh, epidemiologist or something like that so what they do is that if you started to get uh, sick and all that they just follow up uh, follow up like your case by phone and um, only unless you are really really sick and even though there are not enough like uh, infrastructure like medical infrastructure so I, in these like two or three days ago, you can start to see like on the news people like uh, with 
complaining about like well we uh, call an ambulance and after seven hours the ambulance arrived and the patient was already dead at home you know there are cases it was like too this. late yeah i mean i saw that today for example. on the news in mexico yeah yeah, yeah okay. today and it's the first time that i can see that so i guess we in a few days that kind of situation will start to see and um, and there are a couple of hospitals that um like the entire staff is infected because they didn't receive like the entire security um, supplies and all that like the safe for the doctors and nurses and all that so there are two cases of one is in the north it's a city of the north and the other is a hospital here, um, like in the outskirts of Mexico City. That is like, I don't know, like half of the staff is infected and in quarantine. Wow. So, so even the, the medical workers weren't properly protected? I guess, yeah, yeah. They were, they've been complaining since day one that they don't have all the equipment required for the this kind of thing wow but the government is saying that yes that uh, that yesterday there was a uh, plane from china with uh, i don't know like thousands of masks and protection equipment so I guess they started to distributing them to, like in these days but in the meantime there are a lot of uh, doctors and nurses and just the staff from hospital that is getting infected. So in that case, in, for example, in, at those hospitals, there's not anyone who can take care of sick people. I have no idea what are they doing there. Like just transferring people from one hospital to another. I don't know. So the medical system's getting overwhelmed a bit. Is it starting? Yeah, I can see it now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And uh, and so activists are talking about the people who are detained in immigration jails and also prisoners, I guess. They are just talking about the uh, migration uh, detention center. Okay. Not, I cannot see people taking care of the regular prisoners. Okay. I guess because here is kind of, um, it's hard to have like a popular support saying we want to liberate prisoners because there's a lot of, uh, of course there are people that is there in unjust, uh, yeah, it's not just. But um, but there are a lot of uh, people that is there because of the narco war, so it's really hard to make like a distinction. Okay, but then there's a lot of prisoners who are there because they're poor and they stole something. Yeah, for yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. The majority, I guess, I guess. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess here is hard to make that kind that kind of claim. Because most of, I don't know, people still perceive that they are not safe. 
like in like a general before the epidemic like there's still like a lot of violence so for them it's kind of safe to say like well we have i don't know 1000 people in jail because of narco war so it's like oh, okay let's keep them there because they are dangerous yeah but there's a lot so of they are the not majority going the majority to... of prisoners are not those ones exactly yeah yeah but but for majority it's hard to understand that because of fear of course like okay well if they are there is because something they do and they will yeah, no not all of them <laughs> most of them is just for being nearby you know yeah yeah i understand i understand wow but yeah it's not like a at least it's not something that i can perceive as um important to deal to now hmm. which is should be but it's not I see what so you're now saying. it's a yeah I guess now what is urgent is to to put the people that is still on the streets trying to make them go home but it's just not possible wow yeah so anyway let's see how everything the balls, but I cannot see like a good end. That's artist Amanda Ruiz in Mexico um, sharing some reflections. Thank you, Amanda, for that. I wanted to now share um, a vocal piece that a friend of mine shared with me on WhatsApp. Um, this is a vocalist, musician, Ziad Kowali, uh, who uh, plays in... Um, a duet here in Montreal that's gotten a lot of attention called Deville. Also, Ziad uh, performs with a lot of different artists. Um, so I just wanted to uh, share this. Um, thank you, Ziad. <laughs> La ilaha illallah Shafa'a habiblah ya rasla hadura baba Hurmat shahil ashur Tillah ya rasla hadura baba حرمت شهل عشور يا والميلو ديل مذكور والميلو ديل مذكور في أخلاق النبي المبرور لولا سيراج النور راح مليوح على يا وصلقت بها الدنيا زلقت بها الدنيا وزاقت وبقى متلوف تيهتيني عاري عليك باب يا باب الحبيب يا والله ما انساك 
Wallahi ma ninsak ya baba wala naqta'a rajak. That's Siad Kowali, uh, who is a singer, a musician here in Montreal. I know his family is in Morocco. We've been in touch a bit about how it feels to sort of live this crisis in two places. So thank you, Ziad, for sharing that. So last uh, on the broadcast today, I wanted to um, share a recording that a friend of mine who's a filmmaker um, did. Um, he was in Cuba until recently and actually has been in quarantine because he came back to Canada. Uh, this is filmmaker Jesse Freeston. Uh, he's produced um, a number of great uh, sh short and also long-form documentaries. Resistencia is a really good film about the resistance to the coup in Honduras uh, during the years of the Obama administration and what that looked like. Uh, and also, Jesse has produced a lot of other films uh, over recent months, in fact, has been um, working with indigenous land defenders uh, around the Unistoten camp to document their struggle. Uh, recently, Jesse was in Cuba, and I thought it would be interesting to um, uh, ask Jesse to share a few points of reflection as a filmmaker, as a journalist who spent a lot of time in Cuba, in Central and Latin America, about the role of Cuban doctors. A lot of people have seen over recent weeks um, the fact that Cuban doctors have been um, sent to support different crisis zones in the world in the context of COVID-19, including Northern Italy. Uh, and in fact, uh, there was a request from some indigenous leaders in Manitoba for Cuban doctors, but in fact, the Canadian government really uh, did not follow up on that. We're actually kind of hostile to this proposal. Um, Although, obviously, more doctors for indigenous communities in Manitoba is something that's needed. Um, so I did want to share uh, Jesse's reflections about the Cuban medical system and also point out its positive role um, in Cuba, but also internationally. So I just got back from Cuba, well, exactly 14 days ago, because today is the last day my self-isolation and I'm about to go for a walk but before I do I want to tell you about Cuba um, and this incredible gift that it's given to the world in the form of medical solidarity let's call it so Cuba's been making the news um, for sending medical brigades or for Cuban doctors who've and uh, other medical professionals who've gone abroad including to northern Italy and places like this um, there are some hot spots uh, for the coronavirus and people should know that that even before the coronavirus hit, there was already about 60 countries in in the world that have right now Cuban brigades, medical brigades, acting in their countries. And that leads us to Cuba's second great act of global medical solidarity, which was the founding of the Latin American School of Medicine, or the ELAM. It started in 1998 with the devastating Hurricane Mitch which uh, destroyed many communities in Central America, left over 11,000 dead. And Cuba sent brigades to, to help with that situation, help alleviate some of that suffering. It was during that time the Cuban government said, you know what, we should be putting at least as much resources into training people from these communities 
because every time we send a brigade, it takes them time to realize how it works here, what's going on here. Sometimes they don't speak the language there. And it would really be working a lot more efficiently if we got people from those communities to be trained as doctors. And so they started what became uh, the largest medical school in the world, not in China, in terms of students. None of those students paying tuition, all being from the poorest neighborhoods of the most impoverished countries on earth, basically. And to give you an example, um, in Honduras, the Afro-Indigenous community called the Garifuna, Cuba graduated more Garifuna doctors out of the Latin American School of Medicine in the first three years that it graduated students than the Honduran, entire Honduran university system had graduated in 140 years of existence. And I just think it's important that people know a little bit about the kind of doctors that are being sent and, and trained here too. And it goes back to the revolution itself. And it goes back to one of the key players in the revolution, Che Guevara, who as many people know, was a doctor. And uh, he gave a speech um, about a year after the revolution called revolutionary on revolutionary medicine. I want to just read a little bit from that. He says, the principle upon which the fight against disease should be based is the creation of a robust body, but not the creation of a robust body by the artistic work of a doctor upon a weak organism, rather the creation of a robust body with the work of the whole collectivity upon the entire social collectivity. So that is that it's the work of the community to build a preventative form of medicine. And you see that in Cuba. And I saw that um, as the coronavirus outbreak was starting to reach the island. You have a doctor who lives in close proximity to everybody and knows their neighbors. And so they started holding street information sessions to prepare people for what would come, uh, show them, remind them how to sanitize things, how to wash your hands properly, all these all these basic preventative measures, um, and then stood there and answered questions for people for you know hours uh, in, in one of the meetings that I went to. And you also have doctors going door to door, checking in on people, making sure that if they have symptoms or not, if they have any questions on a regular basis. And so it's a beautiful thing to be in a place where people feel cared for because they are cared for. You know, one of the great Cuban revolutionaries, Jose Martí, has a famous quote you see all over the island, which is, la patria la humanidad, which is, uh, humanity is the homeland. So to, to have these Cuban doctors and other medical professionals heading into places like Northern Italy right now and, and showing that care to people there and then, and then training people from Suriname or wherever else to, to be able to give that care in the community that they're from, in the language that they speak. And all this coming from an island that's blockaded. And most of the time they're giving solidarity to places that receive aid from the global powers. It's, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. Thanks, Jesse Freeston, for sharing your reflections. Uh, filmmaker, community activist, thanks for being part of Free City Radio. So this is the fifth edition of the Free City Radio podcast. It's been a pleasure to share with you um, some different voices here on the show. Uh, as you heard, this was a pretty lo-fi show. Um, I did this all at my house uh, here in Montreal off Jean Talon Street. 
Um, and I just wanted to share some voices that I've been in touch with in sort of a DIY fashion. I don't have access to the radio studio. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm still figuring out the sort of technology of this. But I do hope that you could hear clearly what people were saying. So thanks for tuning in. My name is uh, Stefan Christoph. I host Free City Radio on CKUT. This is the podcast edition. Thank you for being part of this by listening and sharing. Um, I know that uh, people rating and sharing podcasts uh, makes a big difference. So if you like the podcast, please rate us. Uh, you can subscribe on uh, Apple Podcasts and other uh, forms for podcasts. Please share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you. If you want to get in touch with me, my email is stefan.christoff at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Spirodon, S-P-I-R-O-D-O-N. Thanks again for listening, um, and I hope you're all keeping well. On those um, contacts, if you have any ideas or voices that you think would be important to highlight, please do get in touch. Um, and I wanted to end with a piece, a trio of three musicians here in Montreal. This was at a Howl Arts concert at La Salarosa, led by Nick Kuffer. Uh, this is a piece called Legs in Migration. That's with Nick Kuffer on guitar, Eric Craven on drums, and Christina Korpecki on cello. Thanks for listening.
Thank you.